This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Our next guest, the owner of DealCorp Properties, he also hosts the Canadian Real Estate Show, of which, for some bizarre reason, it's like I won a lottery or something. I was a guest on there just uh, several weeks ago. He is Daryl Frankfurt. Uh, it's great to have you on again. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Really, good really good. No, I'm not participating in Dry January this year, and I wasn't going to force you to either, Daryl. If you want to have a pop occasionally at various points in the first month of the year, I'm not going to stop you or deter you. I won't. It's been a long 23. I think I, I think I need the release a little bit. I definitely will not be participating <laughs> in those shenanigans. Um, all right. So this story about the developer in Markham, when, when you, this first comes across your desk, uh, this is a long decision because a lot of this, um, at least seems to be, seems to me to be, have happened during, kind of COVID times, um, this, the, the Toronto Star even first reported on ideal developments and the issues of all these pre-builds getting canceled in 2021. So like a lot of things to do with our court system, this took a long, long time. But what do developers and people in the real estate industry say about a fine like this? Well, I, I don't think the fine is such a big deal uh, when you're stealing, you know, two, three, five million dollars of people's deposits. I think the real deterrent is the fact that he won't ever supposedly ever be able to get his license to Mm -hmm. sell real estate again. Uh, Like for me as a developer, that would be the deterrent for me. The fine is negligible, I think. I know it sounds like a lot of money, but compared to what is currently missing, it's it's a drop in the bucket. But if if I were to be on their radar and not be able to sell houses anymore, that that would be an issue for me. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. I'm going to read you um, what the Ontario Real Estate Agent uh, Association, I should say, wanted to, Daryl. And then I'm going to give you the year that this was actually, I found this news story on globalnews.ca. Uh, the Ontario Real Estate Association's advocating fines should be doubled for realtors who break the rules at a time when agents are collecting big commissions in the province's inflated housing market. They think um, if you violate the Code of Ethics under the Real Estate and Business Brokers Act, that fine should go to 50K. Uh, um, the Ontario Real Estate Association wants the maximum fine for brokerages doubled to 100000 This was an October 2017 story. So we're talking six and a half years ago, there's been talk about increasing fines. Um, for bad boys and girls who break the rules and good boys and girls like yourself have to live amongst them and compete amongst them. Should, should the fines be more than they are? The fines should definitely be more than they are, but these are two different topics. One is realtors selling uh, 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 in a certain way, and this is developers selling directly to the public without a license, right? And that, mm-hmm. that's the supposed to be a big no-no and the real problem here is that the the oversight uh authorities uh they they, the the main one tarion was deemed unable to do their function basically to oversee the developers and the builders and so they made this new association in 2021 so ideal development has been on their radar for a very long time they've been doing things differently let's say than most uh for a long time and they've just been doing it over and over again finally this new association has been able to put together a case against them that's that that's uh warranted their fine but Mm. i think the real the real issue is uh that it's the license 
And, and I think people will, if you told a realtor they couldn't have their license if they did something uh, illegal or against the regulations, that would be a, a good deterrent, right? The fines, especially for some realtors, they, they make a lot of money. So sometimes these fines, they're, it's like, yeah. it's a calculated risk that they're going to take the fine if, you know, they make this great sale. Yeah, this ideal developments, this Markham-based developer, it's thirty-four grand in fines, one hundred fifty thousand dollars in restitution, which sounds like it'd be a bunch of down payments, et cetera, et cetera. Though they collected more than five million in deposits, a lot of people, Daryl, would look and say, "What about jail time? If you defraud a major company, that company's going to not only want its money back, they're going to want you know criminal charges to be involved." It just doesn't look like that's going to transpire in a case like this. It will definitely not lead to jail time. Um, I, I would say if it did, that would be a very rare circumstance. It, it, it will just lead to a bankruptcy. Right? Mm-hmm. It'll lead to a bankruptcy, and it'll likely lead to a bunch of people that bought houses losing the majority of their deposits. Um, and hopefully it will lead to a restructuring of the system because it really shouldn't be that that buyer uh, ends up holding the bag, as they say, right? Um, the, the system is really a mess. It should yeah. be jail time. And, and not only that, like there's layers between the, the, the builder developer and the buyer. So, you know, the lender maybe who lent recklessly to someone maybe should hold some of the bag. But generally they're, you know, they're paid out first and then everybody else maybe gets some scraps if there's left. Daryl Frankfurt's our guest, the owner of Deal Corp Properties, the host of the Canadian Real Estate Show. Uh, we're getting you with good timing because I saw this yesterday. Um, a TD forecast, Toronto Dominion forecast, suggests the Bank of Canada will drop its interest rate to 2.25 percent. By 2025. And I read that and I think that's 12 months from now and, and a few days and change. Do you think that prediction has some uh, holds water? Could we get from five to two point two five in the next 12 months? Um, I definitely was wrong um, when rates were going up. <laughs> I never would have thought that they would have gone up that much that fast. So I suppose anything's possible. If you care about the Canadian economy, that sounds like recipe for disaster. It might be a short-term fix to uh, a recession, but um, I can't see that not leading to a hell of a lot more inflation and higher rates uh, quickly again. Mm. Um, before you go, if someone said to you, I saw this story yesterday about the Toronto market and all these uh, Bay Street hotshots, women and men, um, basically saying... I, I, I I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to move. I'll go to the States. I'll go to Europe. I'll go to another city, Halifax, wherever, where I can get more bang for my buck and still do what I do. If someone said to you about the the Toronto market, the 416 in terms of buying property, how would you describe where it is? What do you think changes about that in the next few months? I think it's uh, extremely expensive. I think you have to make a lot of money if you want to live there. And I think it's not fair, but that's how it is, and it's how it's going to stay for a long time. I mean, we've seen a decent correction already, and it doesn't seem to be very affordable yet. Well said. Daryl Frankfurt, uh, where can we hear the Canadian Real Estate Show? Wherever people get their podcasts? We can 
You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on YouTube. Um, and I think that's it. Instagram. We're all over the place. That sounds all over the place. finding us. That sounds all over the place enough. Hey, we'll stay in touch. And thanks very much uh, for being generous with your time this morning and giving us your insight. Uh, enjoy what you do. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Daryl Frankfurt uh, joining us on Toronto Today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. A lot of people tried dry January. Um, no alcohol at all from January 1 to 31. Um, the numbers actually are quite dramatic. There's something also called Sober October. That gains some traction from time to time. You get back in the swing of things in September, but then in October, you take those 31 days off. Um, and dry January participation peaked in 2022. A lot of people decided after about a year and a half of uh, COVID-19 pandemic restrictions that enough was enough, and people kind of got back at it in terms of drinking. Our next guest has been a fitness trainer for uh, 10 years now, and I found him on Twitter really inspiring, a neighbor, if you will, uh, given Ontario borders, uh, Michigan. He's been doing this for, again, a decade, and he took a year off of drinking. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at AnyManFitness, um, and we're very pleased uh, to welcome our next guest on. It's a lot uh, that's going uh, on in his life. His name is Jason Helmus, and he joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Thanks for uh, allowing us to uh, enter your world for a little bit. Hey, thanks so much, Greg. I appreciate you having me on. So you gave up drinking for an entire year. Did someone tell you to, or was it done enough's enough jason your your mood swings your behavior your uh, your anger at the detroit lions losing which isn't a factor anymore what 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 made you do it no it's you know it, it really wasn't anything like that um you know, i wasn't an alcoholic it's not like i was drinking every night or anything like that i would really only have drinks on the weekend i'd have drinks on friday and saturday night and it was a habit that i picked up back in college right i yeah. went to college at eastern michigan and, and like a lot of people do started hitting the bars on Thursday night and then it, that turns into Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. And then, you know, you go to school during the week and then you repeat the process all over again. And I graduated from college in, in 04 and I realized like I, I didn't really stop that habit. Um, I started my career as a teacher. So the Thursday night stops because teaching a bunch of middle schoolers with a hangover is absolutely <laughs> awful. I've, I've, I have done it before and it's brutal. Yeah. Um, it was still like, you know, just, just it's Friday night. I had a long week time to have some drinks. It's, it's Saturday night, you know, celebrate the end of another week, have some drinks. And, and it was, uh, about March or so. I just, I kept seeing stories from other people who had totally given up drinking. And I guess I was kind of sober curious, uh, you know, what would that be like? What would I feel like? And I, I really started reflecting on my own relationship with alcohol and just realized like, I don't think I've gone a week without drinking since I was like 18 years old. And I started thinking about how messed up that, that kind of is and said, you know what? I think I'm going to do it. Um, and that was March 10th. So it hasn't mm. quite been a year yet. Yeah. It's been about 10 months or so, but I'm going to make it until this March 10th. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really, it's been an eye opening process to say the least. Is it, is the longest stretch, the most difficult stretch, just the first seven or eight days of doing it? Yeah, I'd say of about the first month or two, 
Um, and, and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is I wanted to reexamine my own relationship with it. Like, why do I feel compelled on a Friday night to, to have drinks? And sometimes it would be like, I didn't even really want the drinks, but it was like, oh, well, it's Friday night, you know, that sort of a thing. And, and, and alcohol is funny like that. It's so built into our, the fabric of our society. It's the only drug where if you don't do it, people think there's something wrong with you, which is just such an odd thing. Um, but yeah, after you know, the first weekend, I really remember like, you know, Friday night sitting here going, well, what am I going to do now? <laughs> you know, like it just, mm-hmm. it becomes just something to do. Just, just pour a drink and, and watch a, you know, watch a football game, watch a basketball game, watch whatever, you know, hang out with the family. And, you know, it, it, to, you asked the question earlier, did someone tell you you need to knock it off? No, never really affected my relationship with my children, with my wife, with my friends, with, with my business, with anything. Um, but it's funny because I thought it didn't affect all of those things, but 2023 turned out to be the best year I've ever had as far as business goes. My relationship with my kids is stronger. My relationship with my wife is stronger. Yeah. And looking back at it, it's like, man, maybe alcohol really was holding me back from being the best version of myself that I could be. And I, I didn't even realize it, you know. Do you look, it's one of those things where uh, Jason Helmus is our guest joining us. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Any Man Fitness. I, I, do you find the dry Januaries that I mentioned introing you, it's a little, like, do you roll your eyes and say it's a little bit of a gimmick or do you give people credit for just trying something different? What I find with a lot of dry January participants is they hit it really hard in December. They hit it really hard again when they start drinking in February. So what was the point of, of being sober for 31 days if you're just going back to bad habits, right? Yeah, I would never roll my eyes at somebody trying to do something positive with mm-hmm. their life, but I do I do understand what you what you're saying there, right? Is it just just a gimmick, just something to do with friends, just something to, you know, hashtag post on Instagram or some, some nonsense like that, you know. And I'm sure that there are people out there that that are like that, but you know, one thing that I would tell people is if you're going through the process of dry January and I heard you mention sober October as well, do the actual reflection right? Do the actual thinking like, you know, how do I feel? Am I feeling better? Am, am I thinking more clearly? Do I have less anxiety? What are the health benefits that I'm getting out of this? Because really you want things like that, those little kitschy 30-day gimmicks, you want them to, to kind of kickstart something. And maybe you don't decide to go dry for the rest of your life. And I don't think when I'm done with this, I'm going to go dry for the rest of my life. But one thing that I do think is that it's really changed my relationship with alcohol. And that's the whole purpose of these self-improvement experiments that we do. How can you use this to improve your life in some way moving forward? Don't just have it be some 30-day thing that you do. Have it be something that has a positive benefit down the road, something that you you learn from and you experience. Yeah, I I do wonder if we are getting to the point where – I'm watching people, and, and as I get older, I, I, you know, I worry more about people who still pound it like they're 30 when they're 50 or when they're 55. I worry about that because same way as you don't see that many, you know, very large 80 and 85 year olds, do you? Like they didn't make it that far. So fitness, no, it, diet, yeah. drinking, it, you just can't. You cannot live your life at 55 like you did at 25. And I see people and you almost want to, again, it's never our business, right? Unless they come to you and say, give me advice because it's just, it feels like a rude thing to do, but you worry. Yeah, no, you absolutely do. And and you know, I'm 42, so I can start to see the divide in, in, in my friends and family and stuff. The people that take their health seriously, take their fitness seriously, and the people that don't. 
right? It, it'll start in the, the mid thirties. And by the time you're in your forties or in your fifties, like the divide, is just, just mm-hmm. enormous. And you do, you, I mean, you worry about them, you know, they're, they're your, your buddies, they're your friends. And, you know, one of the things that did kickstart this uh, full disclosure uh, back in January of 2023, one of my good college friends who used to be, you know, my, my, my sidekick, my drinking buddy, uh, he passed away due to alcohol issues that he had. So that had been on my mind when this was, was going I'm on. I'm sorry to hear that. And But I, I'm so curious about and I'm very sorry for your loss. Did they get worse or was it just a steady? Is he just he just was the same consumer at 18, 19, 20 that he was a couple decades later. Or did it get worse? Yeah, he had gone through rehab a couple of times and he had fought and I had helped him through rehab and he mm-hmm. became my lifting partner for a little while. Uh, but he went back to work. He was a, a teacher as well. He went back to work and, and, uh, you know, it's anybody who is an addict and any, or anybody who knows an addict and their family or, or friends know that it's just a constant everyday struggle, just, just a battle to, and, uh, it was, uh, in 2023, it started getting bad again, sort of a deal and, uh, just, uh, ended up going downhill. And the big thing is it just, it affects your, your mental health. Um, you know, that I would say that that's probably been my biggest benefit from quitting is that like, you know, I, I don't have any stress, any anxiety, any, anything like, you know, whatsoever. My mental health is, you know, I wake up in a great mood, just super happy all the time. And I know that was a big thing for him. He struggled with, with depression, uh. and mental health issues and those sorts of things. And just, uh, you know, it got him. I, I heard a statistic that, that alcoholics, about 5% of alcoholics will end up beating it long-term, and the other 95% will eventually die from alcoholism, which is just a crazy statistic. Yeah, nine, that's 19 out of 20. And yeah, you, your story, again, I'm glad I came across you. It's really inspirational because I look and I say, there's more than enough occasions where, um, you know, we all have reasons to be around. You're doing it. You sound like you did it for yourself, which again, we got to give ourselves some love sometimes, but everybody else around you, your students, your wife, everybody else sounds like they've benefited in the last 11 months. I would definitely agree with that statement. My relationship mm-hmm. with my wife has never been stronger. Uh, relationship with my daughters has never been stronger. And I have a, a 13 and 11 year old daughter. And that was another thing too. I realized like these girls are getting into those formative years, middle school and high school. How can I sit here with a straight face and say, I don't want you to drink alcohol when they see daddy drinking every Friday and Saturday night. Like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be saying something that, that I'm not showing by example. Um, and yeah, business is, has never been better. You know, helping yeah. lots of people, you know, get in shape and, and whatnot for, uh, for the new year here coming up. So I'm, I'm thrilled with my decision. Um, and you know, it's funny, like I, I don't yeah. even crave it anymore. Like it's, it's just become such a non-issue a non-factor, you know, all those different events throughout the course of the year, whether it's guys trips or football games or basketball games that you're watching or, or, you know, family vacations or, you know, the holidays just passed. Yeah, if you survive those, if you survive those kind of casual moments where there's six, six yeah. guys are bringing a, are ordering beer and wine, and you don't feel the need to, that's it. Like I, I that, that's yeah. the 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 dragon's been slayed at that particular point in time. I got to move it along, but I can't thank you enough for coming on. I hope you'll do it more often. And uh, your story, like I said, it's really inspirational, and I'm getting inspiration from you there. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Greg. I'll wake up early in the morning anytime for you. Shoot me a DM, DM if you ever want me back on. You bet. Thanks so much, Jason, for the time. Happy New Year. All right. Happy New Year to you, too. Bye-bye. Jason Helmus. Uh, he's in Michigan, in Canton, Michigan. Small world, uh, but you can find him at Any Man Fitness. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News. Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. 
So the motto of the Order of Canada, first of all, congratulations. The motto translates to they desire a better country. And I think about your broadcasting and I see a person who's always felt that way about Canada. That's interesting. You know, I think no one's ever said that to me, but you're right. That is actually what this is about for me. I, I think everybody has their own experience with what Canada is. And I, I grew up in a very ethnic neighborhood, immigrant families. All of us were immigrants pretty much in our family or first generation Canadians. We have a particular view of Canada. That is not the one that usually was reflected back to us in the media. It's not the one that I met as I went across the country. It's unique. And then and then slowly you find those pockets and realize that a lot of people have that. I, I, I'm not a nationally proud guy because I've never really bought into national pride. But what I do believe is that good countries are a promise. And, it, and that it is up to the citizens and the government, who are essentially citizens, of course, and the corporations in it, it's up to all of us to be proactive in making it to show people there are lots of ways we can get to a really dope version of this country. Yeah. It, it's amazing you say that because you've always been somebody to me that's sort of forged, um, you know, found your own way. Uh, nobody ever worried, well, I'm not going to see that guy again on my TV or radio, no matter what the moves you made. And, and I admire people who stay in the same place 30 years, but but I also admire the idea that, You've never been afraid to, like I said, sort of get the scissors out and cut yourself a new path. Did you Did you always oh, yeah. view it that way? Or if somebody said, hey, I'll give you a 30-year contract, you pick the job, you stay here, but you've always seemed to want to evolve. The longest contract I ever got offered was Hockey Night in Canada, and I turned it down <laughs> because I didn't want that, right? I, I, I knew that con- I, I should have taken the full contract because then they would have had to keep paying me. But I, I knew that that to me what i'm i set out to do because you know and i don't know what your 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 path is bro but for me i didn't have a big plan i i honestly got into radio kind of by accident even though it was a passion of mine and i didn't know that you could do it and i just my entire goal was to maybe stay up at night and play radio play songs and take phone calls for people overnight it's like that's my when i got into radio all i really wanted to do and then i realized that you could do more and more i think what i have is a an almost unquenchable thirst to explore and have adventure. And I know that in our business, you you kind of get stuck in a place. I was reading a book about people who do what you and I do for a living. Yeah. And one of the things that came up a lot was that you never walk away from the chair. You don't give up the chair. You don't give up the microphone. And I kind of maybe smugly thought when I read that part, I was on a plane thinking, well, that's not me. I could do it. And then I thought, no, you can't do Can you really break your identity and and try other things. That's what ended up happening. So I ended up being a, way more proactive in my career. Sometimes you can read the writing on the wall and see that the industry is changing and independence is better, but I've never been afraid of going for it because it doesn't matter in the end. <laughs> it doesn't matter in the end, right? All that matters is, and you've heard this cliche a million times, how do you make people feel? And I think that, that I put a lot of effort in making sure people feel lovely and or challenged or or... or in a position to grow and I want the same from them. And that's all I really care about. So that how we do it doesn't really matter to me as much as I maybe thought it would, I would early in my career. Is there something, is there a spot or an era that you're proudest of? I, not that I'm proud of, cause I'm not, a, I'm not that kind of guy, but like, I don't, you, I don't think about my, my life and my career in those terms. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, there was a moment where, 
when when hockey started, hockey night started, I knew that that wasn't going to last. So what I did was I started to make House of Strava. I wanted to, I, I got a sense that the way the, the industry was going and the way I wanted to go was more independent. And I just, and I walked by the edge, this radio station I used to work at at Much Music. Yeah. And they had kind of closed up the windows, right? They used to be places where the city was welcome. And I remember walking by saying, these guys who run this have no idea how important it is to give people a place to happen, as they have said. And so I just said, I'm going to do it at my house. So I started my house to Trombo with my, with my, with my partners, right? Bob Makowitz and, and a guy called Colt Eddie and Raquel. And we built this. And there was a moment where I, I was in Standing Rock. You can see that the patch behind me when I was helping out in Standing Rock when that, when the, when that event was happening, that protest was happening. And I got a text saying, Hey, James Hetfield will come over. And I remember jumping in my car in South Dakota, me and my friend Will, and we drove for a day and a half. And we pulled into my house about 20 minutes before Hetfield's. You got to make sure you get there before him, kind of, kind of, just a little, <laughs> totally, right? Totally. <laughs> and I just, and I'd had, I'd had Robert Plant, Elvis Costello, Mixmaster Mike, the cult against mm. me, the kills, all these amazing people came in. But when Robert Plant and James Hetfield came into the house to sit down and do an interview, I remember thinking, and John Prine played a concert. I remember thinking, this is it. And when John Pride uh, told a story about seeing Gordon Lightfoot sing his songs when he was a young man, and Gordon Lightfoot was in my living room watching John Prine tell that story, and then and then Gord started crying when John started singing the song, and I looked around, it was a room full of Canadian artists who all had tears in their eyes, and I thought, this is, this is what it's actually about. So it's not that I'm proud of it, but I was grateful to be able to create a space where people could come and feel this thing that is so real. And I know it sounds kind of cheesy when you say it out loud and people listening, you know, on their way to work or whatever, might, might be hearing it and go, whatever. But it's sincerely, it's so powerful when you can create a place where people, especially grown men, can be emotional with each other. And I remember feeling with that House of Strombo stuff we built, you know, our YouTube channel has grown. It's been really, really a great joy of mine to be a part of that. And that's why Apple Music brought me on board. And I felt like we built it up for the right reasons. Like we didn't join a company, yeah. we built a thing. And that felt really, really lovely, creating that kind of space. Now John and Gord are gone, and I and I, I watch that concert often just to relive those moments. I feel like, and we're very close generationally, but we're going to lose a lot of these icons. Um, and, and even yeah. just in the last year, I know you and I have texted when Robbie Robertson passed away or Gordon Lightfoot yeah. passes away, and you think about yeah. legacies and whatnot. But that's just, I remember when David Bowie passed away, George, and I'm like, this is, Prince passed away a few months later, and I'm like, this is just sort of, we're going to start losing rock and roll icons because most of them are going to get yeah. into their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and there just yeah. was no rock and roll era before this. So the artists that matter no. to us, we're going to lose a bunch of them every year now, aren't we? No, you're right. And and for me, it was when Lemmy passed because Lemmy was supposed to live for multiple eras. And and when Lemmy passed, it's like David wanted to go be with him. And yeah, we lose them all. It's one thing to lose people you know, to an illness that we hope one day we can, we can help cure. But the, the addiction battle, the opioid crisis, this stuff, there are, we're losing a lot of people in ways that we don't need to. And this is the thing that drives me all the time is that we're supposed to use, like we're such a broken country right now in terms of how we talk to each other. Everybody's so divided, like people in our own families, you know, we just experienced that over the holidays. And the thing that actually really matters is, aren't we supposed to keep each other alive and being okay? We can disagree on some of the fundamentals of how to get there, but we got to get there. And mental health and addiction is crucial. And we lost, listen, guys, who are legends because of a fentanyl overdose is just, just, un, just unacceptable. 
You know, my hope is that whoever's working on AI will use it to help code genomes in different ways and we can find cures to a lot of this stuff. But you're right, we're losing people. We're going to keep losing people. What I hope we never lose, and this is why I will consider myself a defender of the faith until they put me in the ground, is that we never lose the lessons we learned from them. Like when Joe Strummer said, no input, no output. The future is unwritten. You know, I talked to Bowie. I remember talking to Bowie, and Bowie told me that, you know, he had to he had to get things. I remember sitting across from him one day. He's just like, yeah, we were talking about some of the, the moments in our career that don't go the way we hoped they would go. And he said, you can't actually learn what the next thing is going to be unless you get something before it wrong. And I really liked the way he saw the world. And I remember talking to Lemmy about the same thing, too. We, you, I've been so lucky. I talked to Prince about it. We, you look at all these great artists and you think, what? we don't have them now, but we have their lessons. Let's never forget those things. Let's never forget those things. Did anyone call you renowned in your twenties? That might the other adjectives, not maybe not renowned, but now you are. I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of adjectives. Definitely not <laughs> notorious, maybe, but not renowned. <laughs> Thanks, bro. It's always nice to talk to you. Oh no! Congratulations and uh, happy new year. Uh, let's all make twenty twenty four a little bit better, a little safer, a little more uh, reasonable. I think we're in agreement than twenty twenty three was. Yeah. We can uh, turn the page on this one and, and hopefully make it a great three hundred sixty five days ahead. Thank you, George. Absolutely, thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. Six forty Toronto. Uh, more than two thirds of the total population of the country lives in the suburbs. So, is there that real? I suppose, political divide and need divide about how we build more homes for people vis-a-vis city versus suburbs. Eric Lombardi is with More Neighbors, and I love picking his brain uh, for issues of building and uh, creating a better uh, universe. And he joins us now on Toronto Today. Eric, it's great to have you on. Thanks for uh, making the time. Uh, Thanks for having me, Greg. When, when I lay out the column, when I look at the column, and when you looked at the column, did you instantly find, no, I find points of disagree? Is there anything you agree with John Ibbotson about in the column? I mean, I think I agree with him on the premise that this is a suburban nation because, you know, more than 70% of Canadians do, in fact, live in suburbs. But I think, broadly speaking, this article was about growth and where people want growth to happen. And I think what I disagree with quite fundamentally is, you know, the reality that the way that we plan our cities and for growth almost exclusively allows for suburban expansion or very intense tower-based growth. What it doesn't allow for is the evolution of older suburbs. And I think that's one of the pieces of conversation that we need to have. What would help older suburbs evolve? Can you expand on, on just that principle and that statement? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a couple of things that I think could really enable older suburbs, particularly ones that are called transit suburbs. So these are places that are closer to um, our major cities and major transit routes that, um, you know, probably built in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And the things that will help them grow is, Things like, you know, allowing up to, you know, four-story, six-unit um, apartment buildings be built on someone's property if they want to redevelop their property. I know um, a lot of suburbanites kind of bristle at that idea, but in a lot of these neighborhoods that we're talking about, they're already sort of denser, higher amenity, but they haven't been allowed to, to grow. The other types of things that would really help and actually get people out of their cars, not because they're being forced to, but because they want to be, is allowing retail in neighborhoods. And we're not talking yeah. like 
super noisy, loud retail, but we're talking like a local coffee shop, you know, a, a corner store where you could pick up you know, some simple groceries, et cetera, if you need them. Um, all these things will help enable these older suburbs to become more you know, accessible, help address affordability, and, you know, might be a better alternative for a lot of families versus, you know, buying a new house like far outside the city where, you know, you're, you're kind of trapped in almost nowhere land. It, it takes now it, it is a real rethink sometimes to visualize um, transit in the suburbs. My example would be going to the OJ, Ajax go straight a go station to come into the city. But I would bet you, Eric, and I don't know how we how we rejig this. I bet you out of every hundred people that get to that go station, I bet you 96, 95 or 96 drive their cars and they park there. Some would take the bus. But it's not walking distance for some. And I, I, I talk to people who take the GO train. Somehow along the way, we decided to, to not really build up into the sky close to transit. To your point, we sprawled it out a little bit. But I'll come back and make the case. There are some consumers. I might even be one of them that prefer that distance in that space. I, I mean, I think a lot of people prefer that distance in, this, in that space. But I think what we have and how we plan our city's growth today is that people don't really get the choice, right? You have these sort of polar choices. One is you move far to get more space, or the other is you, you kind of live in a, a very small apartment that's very expensive and very high density. What you don't really get the choice of is, what if you want a family-sized flat, flat in a neighborhood that wasn't a single-family home? Those don't really exist in this country, and a lot of people might choose that if it was allowed. Yeah, I mean, you make the point. I'll, I'll read your comment back to you, and I'd love for you to expand on it because it was a fantastic point. I actually think John responded to you on Twitter, John Ibbotson in the Globe and Mail, and agreed to it. But I think your sentence nails it here. The reason transit suburbs shoulder so little growth is that growth in existing suburbs has been prohibited by policy for a generation. So, you know, we use that phrase, you get what you pay for, but you also get what you plan for in a way, don't you? Yeah, you, you definitely get what you plan for, right? And I think, you know, what, to bring this back home, we're in a housing crisis because there is a lot of demand to live close to city centers and close to amenities, you know, even like think restaurants, et cetera, that you can walk to. These neighborhoods are incredibly expensive relative to you know, ones that are much further out. And so that does show us that people would like to live in more places that are like this. We just don't build them anymore, nor do we allow places that could become them to become them. And so I, I think John's absolutely correct that a lot of Canadian, I mean, I'm 30, right? Yeah. Like I have tons of friends who want families, who want space, and I, I get it. But it's not everyone. And when we think about how we grow, you have to also think a little bit more about, well, how does this affect the environment? And should we allow more growth in ways that will be beneficial for the environment to happen? And I, I think we're finally starting to have that conversation change policy. I think you're right, but in a way, and I often say this and I often get misunderstood for it, and it's easy to get misunderstood when you just say one sentence and can't provide context. I worry concern about the environment, though we all should have varying degrees of it. It feels like a rich person's problem. And if you're poor and you want what you want um, and and you just need a place to live and, and, uh, and, and amenities, the environment often often takes second place to, to like I would bet you there's a lot of your 30 year old friends who will say I'll take any place anywhere I can afford I just want it to be my own and then damn the torpedoes I'll sort out my my carbon footprint a little later on wouldn't they 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I like to call it the in, in, like uh, environmental narcissists, where you know, you know, hey, like the trees that were where my house is, you know, raise them, but the trees that are you know a block or two away, you've got to protect them, right? And I think we do see a lot of that. You know, I'm not I'm not a purist uh, about you know the green belt. Yeah. I just think that when we you know expand into greenfield land, we should probably do it in ways that don't um, create what I'd call a tax vacuum thirty years on. Yeah. where you know it's not really generating the tax revenue to replace all the infrastructure that was initially built. And, and this is actually something yeah. that is costing our cities uh, a ton of money right now, particularly ones like Mississauga that were really built out um, in this pattern. And so you know, it, if it feels like you're paying a lot of taxes and like the services are getting worse, well, it's, it's because you know, we kind of built our... our we kind of built out in this way that wasn't sustainable over the long term. Yeah, there was no, you got it. You got it right. Even, and I know you and I are in lockstep on a lot of what, what needs to happen about immigration in the next 12 months in, in a compassionate manner. But a lot of what was happening was kind of, was kind of to your point about paying more to get less was kind of baked in. Um, and there, and we're certainly feeling a bit of a reckoning right now. I got to go, but I love having you on and uh, always learn something from our discussions, Eric. Appreciate the time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.